Would you turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, uh, chapter 1. In your bulletin, you'll, I think you have uh, the text from the New International, I mean the ESV. I think that's right. But I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard. It's not exactly the same, but the differences aren't great. Uh, while you're turning there, let me um, thank the session for the invitation to come and to preach this morning. Uh, people keep asking me the question, uh, how does it feel to be retired? I don't know. This is day 15, so it doesn't feel much different than a, vac a vacation or, uh, or something like that. So far, uh, check with me six months down the road, I might have a better feel for what it's like. Uh, but so far, I really, I really can't tell you that, uh, how it feels to be retired. Um, I do send you greetings from Trinity Presbyterian Church, although I'm not the senior pastor anymore. I don't think they would object if I uh, sent you greetings from that congregation. Um, we do pray for you here um, at, um, at Trinity Church on a regular basis. We pray for the churches in our presbytery and um, are thankful for your progress in the gospel and pray that the Lord will bless you richly as you continue to serve him uh, in this part of our state, part of our presbytery. Um, just a few words about our, uh, the book of Philippians before we read the text. Uh, you might know that the Apostle Paul is in prison when he writes this letter to the church in Philippi. The Apostle Paul was used of God to plant that church in Philippi. Um, he received this um, in a dream from the Macedonia, Macedonian man that said, come and help us. And so he was uh, prohibited from going where he wanted to go, was redirected, and he ended up in Macedonia in the town of Philippi. And there he had three converts with which to start the church. When I moved to Statesboro 42 years ago, um, there were five families there, already believers. The Martins were one of those families. Uh, but the Apostle Paul had no believers there. He went there because the Spirit of God directed him there. And the first believer was a woman, a single woman, who was uh, in business for herself and who wasn't even from Philippi. But God was pleased to open her heart to the gospel and she was converted. Uh, down by the river there in the city of Philippi. The second convert was a woman who was possessed by demons who was being used by some men to gain money because she would uh, tell people's fortunes and such. And uh, Paul set her free from the demons that oppressed her and she was the second convert, uh, the second one of the core group for the church in Philippi. And then the third, of course, was the jailer who was watching over Paul and um, Silas as they were uh, put in jail because they had upset the economic uh, plans of those who had this woman who was demon-possessed working for them. Uh, and this man also famously cries out, what must I do to be saved? And the Apostle Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. So you have three converts there. Um, that formed the, the, the core group for the new church in Philippi. I've often wondered how many uh, in our circles would accept a call to go to a place like Philippi with three such converts as their core group and no money. Uh, but the Apostle Paul did stay there for a while 
and see a church established and developed a very close relationship with the believers there. Now Paul, sometime later, finds himself imprisoned in Rome. And this church that he planted and this church that loved him dearly was very much concerned about him. So much so were they concerned about his condition in prison in Rome that they sent a man named Epaphroditus to Rome to find out about him and to take some money uh, to him to uh, assist him in his endeavors. He's uh, there under house arrest. He's not able to go and come as he pleases. Uh, they were concerned about what was going to happen to him. Is he going to live or is he going to die? Is he going to be executed uh, by the Roman government or will he be set free? They're not sure. And so they couldn't stand it anymore, so they sent uh, Epaphroditus to find out. Of course, Epaphroditus was sent back then by the Apostle Paul with this letter to let them know what was going on, uh, to relieve them of their concerns. And he also um, discusses a number of things with them in the letter. So what will happen um, to the Apostle Paul? Some fear for his life, and this is his dilemma. What is he going to do? What does he hope for from the living God, from his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? Does he desire at all costs to be set free? Or is he willing to accept that he may have to bear testimony to the truth of the gospel uh, by his own uh, life, with his own shed blood? That was his dilemma. What would it be? Life or death? What should he do? What does he desire? So with this sort of introduction, would you follow along in your copy of the scriptures as I read from the New American Standard Version, Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 to 30. Here now the reading of God's holy and infallible word. The Apostle Paul writes, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, for I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you, continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, 
experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, now we pray for the work of your Holy Spirit. We remember uh, the instruction of the Apostle Paul that the natural man cannot understand the things of God for they are spiritually appraised, but that the spiritual man appraises all things because he has the mind of Christ. So we pray now that your Holy Spirit would enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ and that you, Holy Spirit, would take the truth of your word and apply it to our hearts that we might be transformed by it. I pray, Father, for the saving power of the gospel. If there's someone here this morning who does not know Christ, who has not put his faith and trust in Christ, they would do so even on this Lord's Day morning that they might be saved from the consequences of their sin, from the judgment that is to come. And Father, I pray for those of us who have put our trust in Christ, that we would see the glory of Christ, the majesty of Christ, the beauty of Christ, and be drawn to him, that we might be able to say with the Apostle Paul, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The story is told of two hunters who were out uh, in the woods and they came across a bear that was extremely large and they were so frightened, frightened half to death by the sight of the bear that they dropped their weapons, dropped their rifles and ran for all their worth. One man climbed a tree as high as he could to escape this bear. The other ran directly into a nearby cave. Well, of course, the bear was in no hurry Uh, So he sat down between the tree and the cave to reflect on his good fortune. Suddenly, for no apparent reason, the hunter in the cave came rushing out, almost ran into the waiting bear, hesitated, and then dashed back into the cave again. A little time passed, the same thing happened a second time. And when he emerged from the cave for the third time, his companion in the tree frantically called out, Hey, are you crazy? Stay in the cave till he leaves. To which he replied, I can't. There's another bear in the cave. (laughs) Now, sometimes we are in a dilemma like that where we have two choices and neither one of them is any good. We're not sure what to do. Sometimes we're in a situation where we have two options before us. We have a dilemma. And we're not sure which one is the best. They're both good options. That's the kind of dilemma the Apostle Paul finds himself in, in our text. He's in prison in Rome. And on the one hand, he longs to be out. That he might resume his ministry uh, and proclaim the gospel. On the other hand, he sees heaven right before him. The prospect of being in the presence of Christ Jesus his Lord and Savior. Which one would be the better choice? He's not sure. And so he finds himself caught between these two choices. What will help him to make the decision that is best? Well, what is the driving force of his life? What is the passion of his soul? 
Now, believers can have all kinds of desires and ambitions and all kinds of passions in life. We can have hobbies and interests of all kinds in this world, and there's nothing wrong with enjoying the things of this world. You can like hunting. It might be a passion of your life. Sports, painting, travel, whatever it might be. But it cannot be for a believer who has come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. It cannot be, it must not be, the overall driving force of your life. If you have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the Savior of sinners, the one in whom alone you can find eternal life and entry into the portals of heaven. And in the day of resurrection, new heavens and new earth, then that must be your driving force in all your life. For the Christian, it must be, as the Apostle Paul declares, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So I want us to think, first of all, about the primary goal uh, of your life. The primary goal of the Christian should be to exalt Christ. And if the primary goal uh, of the Christian is to exalt Christ, then secondly, that will help him resolve dilemmas about what he ought to do. And then thirdly, we see the impact in the way it presses us on to a greater maturity in Christ. So first we note the primary goal of our lives as believers is to exalt Christ. Note verses 20 to 21 with me. The Apostle Paul declares, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So this is the overriding, all-consuming, passion, driving principle of Paul's life in any and all circumstances. What will exalt Christ the most? If my suffering exalts Christ the most, so be it. If my imprisonment exalts Christ the most, so be it. If my death exalts Christ the most, so be it. If my continuing to live on this earth exalts Christ the most, then so be it. In any and all circumstances, this is the question that must drive us. This is the question that must always be before us. What will exalt Christ the most? Not what will make me the happiest, although an argument could be made that you will be most happy in your life when Christ is most exalted in your life. Not what makes you most comfortable in this life. Not what gives you the most sense of fulfillment or satisfaction in this life, but this. What will exalt Christ the most? What will draw attention to His glory? to His honor, to His majesty, to His beauty, what will show off 
the exceeding greatness of Jesus in your life? This is the question. This is the primary concern in any and all circumstances. What will best show off your Savior's glories in this dark world in which we are living? So here's the dilemma for the Apostle Paul. Exalt Christ here by my life in this world or exalt Christ by my death and the world to come? Which choice will at this moment in my life bring more honor, more glory to Jesus? So in verse 21, the Apostle Paul states, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is his conviction. First, his conviction is with regard to living, to live is Christ. While I live on this earth, my focus is on Jesus. That's why we gather here on the Lord's Day. We are not a social club. We don't come here primarily to see one another, although we benefit from seeing one another, and we are to encourage one another and stimulate one another to the good deeds. But our primary focus on the Lord's Day is to gather together and cast our eyes heavenward, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and to exalt Christ, to join our voices, to unite our souls with the heavenly host, angels and prophets and apostles and martyrs who've gone before us, and joining the heavenly throng and sing our praises with the heavenly host unto Christ Jesus our Lord, is to come and sit underneath his word and listen for his voice proclaimed to us from his word. While on this earth, my focus is on Jesus. Since he came to this earth and took my sin and guilt upon himself in my place, since he endured the righteous wrath of Almighty God that I deserve in my place, since he purchased me out of the slave market of sin, then I owe him everything. Everything in my life. He is my Savior. He is my Lord. He is my everything. To live is Christ. Or is it? Could you say that this morning? Is this your assessment? Would you agree with the Apostle Paul? I remember hearing Dr. Henry Cravendon preach on this text many, many years ago. I've never forgotten it. I've forgotten a lot of sermons. I've forgotten many of my own. But I never forgot this one. He said to us at Trinity Church, my friend, in a thick Dutch accent, if to live is not Christ, then to die is not gain. If you have not given your life to Christ, then to die will be loss, not gain. You will lose your soul. 
But for the Christian who knows that his soul has been secured by Jesus, to live is Christ. He says, I don't live for myself or for my job or for my wife or for my husband or for my children or my family or my country. I live for Christ. To live is Christ. And then secondly, to die is gain. The Christian who knows that to live is Christ looks at death differently. So what if I die? Death is my promotion. Death is my portal into heaven. Death is my introduction into eternity. An eternity of blessing. I'm not afraid of death. Death to me is not loss. To die, says the Apostle Paul, is gain. Now I know the feeling of loss at death. I'm sure many of you know it too. The sorrow of loving a lo lo losing a loved one, a mom or a dad or a little child or a husband or a wife. But what about your death? Is your death something to be feared if you know Christ? Is it to be avoided at all cost? Was Paul cowering in the jail cell, bound by chains, trembling at the thought of his death? No, Paul says to live as Christ and to die as gain. What do I have to lose at death? This world of sin and sickness and sorrow? To die is gain. Why? Because of Jesus. At my death, I'll be ushered into his presence, engulfed in his perfect redeeming love, overwhelmed by his holy, perfect, unimaginable beauty. And in the resurrection, I will enter into the unspeakable and eternal blessings of new heaven and new earth. To die is gain. But if to live is not Christ, to die is loss. If you're living for something else this morning, if something else is the driving force of your life, if something else is the overwhelming passion of your life, then to die is not gain. It is loss. If to live is money, then to die is loss. If to live is pleasure, then to die is pain, not gain. If to live is power, then to die is loss. It is not gain. So this should be your primary goal, your primary passion, to live for Christ since he died for you. Is it? If not, it must be that you do not know Jesus at all or that you do not know him well enough. I know that's the case in my own soul. When I get caught up with the passing pleasures of this life, 
as though, as though those things are the determining factors of all the matters of import in my life. It's because I've taken my eyes off the beauty and glory of Jesus. And so as the Apostle Paul sits in prison, he weighs his options. What does he want? Life or death? To stay in this world or to pass on to the next. And for the Apostle Paul to live as Christ and to die as gain. Now secondly, I want you to note that this primary goal, if this is the primary goal in your life, as it was in the Apostle Paul's life, then this will be the determining factor in your decision making. When you're weighing the issues of life, the major issues of your life, then this one factor, this one driving force of your life will push you in one direction or the other with regard to what you ought to choose. So it was in the Apostle Paul's life. Look at verses 22 to 23. But if I am to live on in this life, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. So here is Paul's dilemma. He's stuck in some sense between these two options. Which one will he choose? How does he know which one to choose? Which one will be better than the other? Which one will prevail over the other? In verse 22, he states, I do not know which to choose. Verse 23, he states, I'm hard pressed from both directions. What do you do? Flip a coin. Check your horoscope. Well, of course, neither one of those will help you. How does Paul resolve or resolve this dilemma? Well, he moves from his dilemma to this deliberation. Here is Paul's internal deliberation. He argues with himself, uh, what should I do? Let me analyze the choices. Let me consider the pros and the cons of each one. So we look first, choice one, to live on in the flesh, to stay in this world, to continue to proclaim and to minister the gospel of Jesus. What are the advantages of this choice? How will that work out? Well, he says, well, first of all, if I stay in this world, uh, then I could continue to have fruitful labor in the gospel. Paul desires to be fruitful. John 15, verse 8, Jesus says, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And this was Paul's passion, to live a fruitful life as a believer, and thereby exalt Christ. So maybe he should live on in the flesh. Stay in this world, keep laboring, bearing fruit, and in this way exalt Jesus. So fruitful labor, that's a pro in favor of staying. Uh, there's another pro in favor of staying. He would be able to meet uh, important needs. So in uh, verse 22, or verse 24 that is, now, the Apostle Paul uh, makes this statement, yet to remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sake. They have many needs. And he's thinking, well, if I stay in this world, I'll be able to help meet those needs. 
Uh, so here again, an argument in favor of staying uh, in this world. If he stays here, he'll be able to be of great use in the lives of believers who have great and important needs. He'll be able to evangelize. He'll be able to teach and counsel and exhort and encourage, provide guidance, uh, plant churches. Here's a good argument for staying in this world. It provides opportunities to exalt Christ by meeting important needs. But then again, on the other hand, he's being pressed in the other direction. Maybe he could be more Christ-exalting in his death. So we note choice two, to depart from this world. Which one will it be? Well, Paul tells himself that to depart from this world um, would also be good. It would result in his being in the very presence of his Lord, to be in the very presence of Jesus, to be absent from the body, the Apostle Paul tells us in Corinthians, is to be present with the Lord. To be directly in the presence of Jesus would be glorious. What praise would be evoked from his soul in the presence of Jesus? What exaltation would come forth? All sin removed from his life, all conflict resolved, complete satisfaction and fulfillment in the presence of Christ, immeasurable peace, imperishable inheritance, inexpressible joy, incomparable blessing would be his. So Paul argues that to depart from this world and be with Christ would be, he says, much better. It would definitely be much better for him. I mean, he had a hard life. Read 2 Corinthians, the, the litany of, of persecution and abuse that he endured. I'm sure as he thought about the prospect of more of that, he might think, I'd rather be with Christ. It would definitely be much better for him, and it could result in much more praise and exaltation to Christ. So what to do? Which will it be? Which choice? would be more exalting to Christ? And this is the question that we ought to ask ourselves as well as uh, the Apostle Paul in any and every question of life. Especially when we deal with the big questions of life, right? Uh, which job should I take? Which job presents to you uh, the greater possibility as far as you can understand it of bringing greater glory to Christ which mate which school which career and on and on it goes so Paul makes a decision guided by this overriding principle and he decides that it would be better for him to stay and then we see uh, the great benefit and blessing of that decision for uh, the life of the church, for believers. The decision, so finally, the last point I would like to make. First, we need to embrace this overriding passion as uh, the passion of our souls, uh, to live as Christ, to die as gain. Secondly, that will then help us to resolve uh, dilemmas. It will help us to make the right decision, the big issues of life. And then thirdly, 
when that decision is made that exalts Christ, it always results in benefit and blessing uh, to the body of Christ. So look at verses 25 to 30. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for all you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. I think the Apostle Paul concludes that it's more needful for him to stay for their sakes and that this would result in more glory for Jesus. Live or die, it matters not to him what will exalt Jesus the most, not what will make me most happy, what will be the easiest choice for me, what will provide the greatest sense of fulfillment for me, what will cause the least suffering in my life, actually to stay and minister in Philippi will expose him to greater suffering. More suffering, more hardship, more adversity. The decision to stay or to go is not for him personally. He desires to go and be with Jesus, but he stays. It is not for himself, but for them, for their well-being, for their progress in the gospel. Verse 25, he says, for your progress and joy in the faith. Verse 26, he states, um, so that your proud confidence in me may uh, abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. So again, whether I live or die, may Christ be exalted. If I continue here in this world, in the flesh, whether I come to you in Philippi or whether I remain absent, this is to be your goal. This is to be my goal. Exalt Christ in all you say and do. And in verse 27, Paul states, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come to see you or remain absent. This is another way of saying, put Christ first in everything. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel in your marriage, in your family, at school, in your job, in your neighborhood, to live as Christ, to die as gain. So if you make this the driving force of your life, then it will become evident. And it will produce a whole different um, mindset in the body of Christ. If all of you are taking that same perspective, Every member of New Covenant uh, Church has made this the driving passion of his life. Uh, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. That will transform your congregational life. 
The Apostle Paul says to the Philippians, if you'll do that, then I will hear about it. The result will be that you are being built up in Christ. And I think four things will become evident of this growth and maturity that arises from being anchored in Christ. Unity, conviction, stability, and perseverance. It will be evident that you are standing firm in unity because Christ, if Christ is the driving passion of your life and Christ is the driving passion of your life, then we will all be united in Christ and we'll not war against one another because our passion will be in everything, every decision, that more than anything else, more than my desire, my preference, whatever I desire, Christ is exalted. He is lifted up. Paul says, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. To live is not Christ. You're living for something else. We'll have competing values. Inevitably, we'll be at war with one another. When your soul is anchored in Christ, fixed upon Christ, you'll stand firm. You'll stand firm together. Your common devotion to Jesus will unite you. It will give you one mind, one purpose, one pursuit. And if not, then you might be divided over petty things. You know, most, my experience in most churches that have divisions are not over really weighty theological subjects. I've yet to see a church in our presbytery or anywhere else divide over an argument concerning the deity of Christ. I've seen some divide over many things that don't come anywhere close to being that significant. I'm not saying insignificant but not anywhere close to that. It'll produce unity in the body of Christ. It'll produce conviction. Verse 27, you'll be, Paul said, I'll, be, I'll hear about you that you're striving together for the faith of the gospel. I know it's an overused phrase, but we talk about gospel-centered churches it's not a bad phrase, though. We rally around the gospel, the gospel that saves us, the gospel that gives us new life in Christ, the gospel that we proclaim to this lost world. And when that is our focus, then that also gives us a sense of conviction. We are striving together for the faith of the gospel. Our passion will be the gospel, the good news of Jesus, we are living for Christ, then the gospel will be central to all we say and do. We'll embrace the gospel, live the gospel, and proclaim the gospel. Unity, conviction, and also stability. It will produce a sense of stability in the body of Christ. Um, it'll be evident by a sense of calmness and consistency in the body of Christ no matter what's going on in the world around you. 
And that's rather chaotic right now. I don't know if you noticed it. And it might be getting even more chaotic in the years to come. The Apostle Paul says, In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. In no way alarmed by your opponents. Don't we often get alarmed by them? Oh, what's going to happen to us? Are they going to persecute us? Are we going to lose our tax-exempt status? Is our preacher going to be arrested? When we're living for Christ, when you believe that to die is gain, then your soul is unshakable, immovable, and you'll not fear what man can do to you in this life. Remember Jesus said, don't fear man who after having destroyed the body cannot do anything to the soul. Let me tell you who to fear, fear God who can, after having destroyed the body, cast the soul into hell. When we're gripped by a godly fear, a holy reverence of the living God, and seek refuge in the arms of Jesus, and find peace for our souls to live as Christ, to die as gain. And a settled conviction floods our souls with peace. And we can say it is well. It is well with my soul. To live as Christ, to die as gain, to produce unity, conviction, stability, and perseverance. Even in the midst of suffering, verses 29 and 30, the Apostle Paul says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So you'll not shrink back from suffering that your heavenly Father allows to come into your life. To suffer for Christ's sake will be your privilege Note how the Apostle Paul speaks about this as something having been granted to us. It's been granted to you not only to believe. In other words, that's good, God's good, sovereign grace, pleasure. That he's opened your heart, opened your eyes, made you alive in Christ by his sovereign grace. According to his sovereign decree of election. He's granted you to believe. And by the same sovereign pleasure... He also grants you the privilege of suffering for Christ's sake. I don't know about you, but I don't often think about it that way. I'm like Peter. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Lord, let's just stay here. Let's pitch some tents. Forget about Jerusalem. And to my shame... Paul says, it's been granted to you for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. He's granted us saving faith and eternal life. 
that it's our privilege to suffer for his sake, for his cause. And when, when to live is Christ and to die is gain, when you have that proper perspective about your life in Christ, and when that is the overwhelming passion of your life, then you'll not shrink back from suffering that your heavenly Father brings into your life. You'll say, let me identify with Jesus and his cause so closely that I will welcome the opportunity to suffer for Christ's sake. That's what the early Christians did. You read about it in Acts chapter 5, verses 41 to 42. After they were beaten and sent on their way, we read of the early church, so they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Isn't that amazing? Why would anyone, why would you, why would your pastor, why would your elders, why would they keep standing firm, fighting for the unity of the body of Christ in the face of all kinds of issues that could undermine it? Why would anyone keep striving for the gospel when they're facing all kinds of opposition? Why would anyone remain calm in the face of opposition from all kinds of opponents? Why would anyone continue to persevere when it means continued suffering? Why? 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 Because one thing drives them on. One passion, a deep love for Christ, a deep and driving desire to see him exalted above all else. Live or die, may Christ be exalted. To live is Christ and to die is gain. The driving force of the life of a believer, the crucial factor in the major decisions of life, what will exalt Christ more, the pathway to spiritual health and fruitfulness. May God help us as we pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the testimony of the Apostle Paul. And we are but feeble men. We are not apostles. We are men, women, and children who live in this world who are sometimes many times often subject to and overcome by the lust of our flesh, the lust of our eyes, the boastful pride of life. So we ask you, Heavenly Father, have mercy upon us. Forgive us of our failures and show us more clearly the glory of Jesus. Help us estimate more rightly the value of his sacrifice, what he gave for us, that we might gain eternal life, that we might say with the Apostle Paul, truly, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Amen.